Hello everyone, welcome to Cricket with an Accent and this is our extension of the Samir Chopra podcast we did a month ago where we talked about the historic one-of-a-kind India-Pakistan cricket battles, how these matches you know, have so much impact on both nations and cricket was such a, a yardstick to measure excellence and uh, Pakistan enjoyed the dominance because of their excellent teams and their talented uh, bowlers and you know mercurial batsmen like Miyadad and Zahir Abbas and now we'll talk about where some of this started shifting with the rise of a certain Sachin Ramesh Tendulkar. Mohammad Azruddin had a cameo as a captain which I think Samir is going to break down. It was very detrimental on how India is going to play and then of course uh, today Virat Kohli. So let me welcome Samir back to the show. I'm excited for this one. I'm ready to go. It's just like an India-Pakistan match but we are both Indians here. So welcome to the show Samir. Uh, thanks, Akib. It's very much for having me on. It's great to be back on your show. So, yeah, no warm-ups. I mean, I think you were ready to hit first half volley for a cover drive. So, <laughs> so last time we ended, you know, with Imran winning that series and Gavaskar's knock in Bangalore and the 5-1 washout. You also mentioned Miyadat 6 with the Pakistan team, according to you, was much better. Uh, there could be a case of scar tissue, but they were just better than the Indian opponents. Yeah. So let's talk about the Reliance Cup. As a young boy, I went to Lahore uh, for during the Reliance Cup to attend a wedding, but the main idea was to go catch a match in Lahore, which didn't happen. But I watched a few days of Reliance Cup in Pakistan uh, with my uh-huh. aunt. We were attending. I was very young. And uh, Imran and his team were looking the clear favorites. India was a pretty good side too. So yeah. let me ask you this. That final that didn't happen, yeah. was it the biggest match India-Pakistan didn't play. Because to me, that was like a collision course. They had our number, but, uh, you know, India was also peaking the way we handled Australia. Gavaskar scoring that century. Uh, you know, Azhar was in good form. You know, Kapil was in good form. So what are your recollections and do you view that match, the match that never happened, that could have been like the biggest of all matches? You know, I have a very... Uh... I think sort of singular perspective on that match because that match was the first time that I made contact with or that match that didn't happen in some sense was the first time that I made contact with cricket in the United States because at that time I was a graduate student. I was in New Jersey and our and our graduate student association, they arranged for a telecast of the final by getting some sort of satellite link up. We arranged to showed in the two theaters on campus and we sold tickets aggressively for the final because everybody was anticipating that the final was going to be an India-Pakistan final. And uh, the graduate school that I went to had a huge population of Indian-Pakistani students. So we expected to sell out. We expected to make a lot of money for our next year's budget. Uh, We had everything arranged. We planned to make a lot of money selling food, coffee and tea as well. And of course, what happened was that Pakistan lost first. And when Pakistan lost in the first semifinal, all the Pakistani students showed up the next day at the tables asking for refunds. And of course, all the Indian students very gleefully said, ha no refunds. Pakistan has lost. You bought the tickets. You better show up. And, the, and, and I think Indian students at that time were sort of snickering about the possibility that we were going to get to the final and all these Pakistani students were going to show up to cheer for India's opponent, you know, whoever it was going to be. Of course, the next day, India lost their semifinal as we were swept away by Gooch, as the story goes. And, you know, of course, the next day, all the Indian students lined up for refunds and we had to tell them, sorry, guys, no refunds. And, you know, I worked that entire night selling tea and coffee outside in the 
in the lobby while we showed the game inside these two different theaters. I ran up and down the, the school buildings, uh, getting food supplies. And, you know, it was a very strange sensation watching England and Australia playing the final in at Eden Gardens. I think all of the, I think, student sympathies, I think, ultimately, in some sense, I think there was some... I think there were some who supported the English, but mostly people wanted the Australians to win. Um, there were some, I think there was some animosity amongst Indians, uh, you know, because of the finish of the tight test that had happened against uh, Australia the year before, you know, which I think had left a bad taste in some Indians' mouth because of the, because of all the, um, all the clashes between the players as that tight test had ended. But by and large, I think most Indian students wanted to see Australia win, and they did. But I often thought, thought about that final because, no, in that crowd, the, the people watching the final were all Indian and Pakistani students. And all of us wanted to be watching India and Pakistan playing the final. But I'll also be honest with you, there was one part about me that was actually relieved that we didn't have an India-Pakistan final. I mean, I knew how intense India and Pakistan games were. And the idea of having India and Pakistan meet in the final of a World Cup just felt a little bit too much tension, a little bit more, more sort of stress and um, you know disappointment than I could handle. But I will say one thing: India has an unbeaten re record against Pakistan in the World Cup. I do think that if Pakistan beats India in the World Cup, just because that'll be the Pakistani thing to do, I think they'll beat India in the final of a World Cup. Mm. Yeah, I think a lot has changed and. You're right. I mean, whenever India plays Pakistan, I've also lived more than half of my life in New England. Spent a few years in New York, uh -huh. and, and I have some good Pakistani friends here. And I, I understand. I mean, there was a golden rule. Uh, one of my closest friends who also come on the podcast, we never watch India-Pakistan match together. And secondly, we don't call each other because you respect the territory. You know, because... <laughs> <laughs> and it, it, we, didn't, we never even decided that's the case, but that's how... Uh, that's how it played out. But I also have a small memory for that Reliance Cup. Uh, I was in Pakistan, and when Pakistan lost, I don't even remember. We were at some sort of a Palika Bazaar kind of a shopping complex. And I remembered when, I think it was uh, Steve Waugh, I think or I think Salim Jaffer was the last guy who got out. So uh -huh. when Steve Waugh got him, I think he was bowling the last over. 18 were needed. When Pakistan lost, all TVs shut down at the same time. You felt like something happened, you know? And as a young Indian boy, I was happy. But the moment every TV shut down in the shopping complex, even the customers are not happy and the store owners are not happy, nobody's happy. You know how it goes because that was a team that was supposed to win. And I was you know, I was kind of quiet. But then we were there for a wedding and I uh, gave hard time to some of the older guys you know, who were hosting the wedding and I was part of that group. They, they wow. didn't say much, but then believe me, they gave it to me full in the wedding reception when Gooch famously swept us. So I think they made me cry. I mean, I was very young. But uh, right. but I remember that. I mean, I still think that match could have been something very special because in the group stages, India on Diwali Day, I remember, gave Australia a royal beating in the Kotla. And we yeah. had lost, uh, I think, Chapak by one run. You know, again, Greg Matthews. So it was, India really had that Australian size number. But then it was, I guess, Alan Borders, you know, destiny and England were, you know, they were to play the final. So, yeah, that's quite the memory we don't have. I think we both agree there for different reasons. Yeah, yeah that's a good story on, uh, on your side on uh, being in Pakistan for that wedding and those interactions. Because I think I, uh, I think every 
diaspora fan that has um, attended cricket games or attended, you know, telecasts or viewings or whatever, um, there's a very sort of rich set of stories to be told about the various interactions that have taken place between Indian and Pakistani fans. Uh, you know, out in Toronto, for example, where these games used to take place, and of course, in the various uh, viewing venues where um, where people go to watch games together. I think I think there's a fascinating book to be written about little short stories generated just by these encounters. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, this is cricket brings people together, and you know, and before, till before, or after the match, but during the match, <laughs> yeah, you can definitely, uh, I think, write a book on that, and maybe you should because you, you, well, you there is. Uh, You've there is some of that in my third book, that's for sure. Okay. All right, so let's keep the conversation uh, with Sachin Tendulkar. Again, uh-huh. the, the Renaissance man and, you know, the Indian attitude needed some uplift. I know you said Pakistan team was talented, but there was a fear factor when Akram had the ball or even Azim Hafiz, whatever my memories are. You know, besides Gavaskar, we didn't really feel we matched up well. And then Chris Srikan getting hit in that Hyderabad ODI and he was never the same man against Akram. So when Tendulkar comes in 89, of course, there was a lot of hype. If you follow cricket, you know what kind of a prodigy he was and boy, did he deliver. But in that series, I mean, uh, what are your memories when, you know, he was selected for that series and then when he goes and plays that first test, uh, I believe. You know, uh, uh, that's once again a very interesting question, largely because my introduction to Tendulkar was very indirect. I was in the States at that time and, you know, we got news, cricketing news, very secondhand. So, uh, you know, we might have been able to arrange for a satellite telecast of the 87 World Cup, but but once that was over, we went back to getting delayed news or, you know, picking up news that came on cricket news groups and that typically used to be people relaying cricket news via phone call or, uh, you know, some you know, some kind of telephone call that they'd had with a friend. So, for example, it was very common for somebody to pass on cricket news by saying, my cousin and I talked the other day and he told me that this was the score in the test match, right? Um, So the way I found out about Tendulkar was that um, uh, an Indian graduate student came to our, uh, my apartment in New Jersey and and he actually used the phrase Naya Gavaskar, which basically means that, you know, there is a new Gavaskar on the scene. Uh, the difference is, he said that this guy is only about 16 years old and he's and he's been picked for the Indian side. And, you know, he's been playing Ranji Trophy for the last one year since he was a schoolboy. And so, you know, we were intrigued and fascinated, but I didn't come to know how his, how his debut against Pakistan went. But then the next year, when Tendulkar went to England in 1990, I think that's when details of his exploits had come through to me. I had read a little bit about what had happened in Pakistan on his debut. And then, you know, that summer, he scored centuries in England. Um, A year later, when he went to Australia, he scored that famous century at Perth against the Australian pace attack. Um, And then, you know, that initial promise that he had been showing in these these centuries, uh, he started to bolster that with heavier and larger and bigger scores in the mid-90s. And, you know, Dravid and Ganguly showed up in 96, as did Lakshman. But I think the stage was obviously set by Sachin. He had, you know, in those days, he was still a bit of a lone star. He was, you know, some of that pattern that people noticed in, you know, many parts of his career where Tendulkar was the only high scorer in in, in innings. Um, Those were certainly present in the early part of his career. I think the difference, of course, was that once Dravid, Ganguly, and Lakshman showed up in '96, and all of them made very dramatic debuts in uh, in '96. 
Um, once that had happened, I mean, you had the you had the foundations of a very strong middle order, and uh, you know you could start to look around for a bowling attack that would uh, you know that would help this batting you know that would help this batting lineup put the runs on the board that would improve India's attack uh, or India's record overseas, which is you know what we have really finally started to see now. And I think uh, maybe a series or two before Sachin, I think, uh, went to Pakistan. I think uh, Vakar Yunus also came on the scene at the same time. So Imran yeah. was way past, I think, his best bowling days for sure. Because yeah. this was his second coming when I think the president asked him to come out of retirement and lead Pakistan again. So he was yeah. playing as someone who would... He wasn't a strike bowler, let's put it this way. Yeah. So in yeah. that series, you know, the new rivalry started and... and and Manjrekar had a huge presence in that series. Yeah. Uh, so definitely, that's I think the last Test series India played in Pakistan, and then we didn't go there till 2004. And then of course there was the Asian Test Championship in between. But that's I think right. the focus of the conversation today would be rise of Tendulkar, and we seldom played Pakistan in Sharjah after the first yeah. few years. So let's jump straight away to the Akib Javed hat trick tournament. To me. Uh-huh. I know, like, he had hit Kadir for those four sixes, and I, I saw that match on TV as a young boy. I was just, you know, you know, amazed, yeah. you know, how talented this guy was. But for me, the, 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 the real edge of Tendulkar came when we were playing Pakistan before yeah. the hat-trick match. If you remember the match, I don't know, was uh, India was batting without floodlights, and it was pretty dark. And uh-huh. Sachin almost won that match for us. He scored, I think, 50 or 60 in that match. And for me, as a young fan... That was like the most reassuring point that, okay, you yeah. know what? We have someone who can take these guys on. Because That's the rivalry right. as a young boy was seen pretty one-sided after the six. I yes. know I, I'm, you convinced me that they were more talented, but that's yes. how it came across. And that was a game-changing, even though, you know, the next match had the hat-trick and we lost, lost both matches. But that's when yeah. I think my friends, and I'm sure like everyone who's my generation, to me, that is the match that, you know, doesn't get talked about in Tendulkar's, you know, I mean, there's, you can write books and, about this guy. But I think that's the match Sharjah, I want to talk about. Sharjah a interesting venue for Tendulkar because I associate both aspects of Sharjah with Tendulkar. You know, uh, Tendulkar played some of his, you know, I, I don't know, you know, some folks say some of his greatest innings as Sharjah, for example, you know, that innings against Australia in 1998, that, you know, the that uh, that pair of innings, which sometimes his fans like to call, um, you know, the desert storm. Um, but I think there's also that part of Tendulkar that had become, you know, tired of Sharjah by the end. You know, I think he once famously said after India was booed, you know, by its fans at a post-match presentation ceremony when they had lost to Pakistan. You know, he said he never wanted to play in Puck in uh, in Sharjah again. And then, of course, there were all these match-fixing rumors that used to swirl around Sharjah because, you know, when the camera used to pan away from the from the pitch and into the stands, you know, you would see these guys, you know, who were sitting in the stands. And I believe, you know, once uh, Daud Ibrahim had been sitting in the stands at Sharjah. And so there's all these suspicions about, you know, the, about the connections between the underworld and the world of match-fixing in Sharjah. So I found I found Sharjah cricket fascinating for that reason. Uh, and I think, and I think Tendulkar there found the cricket edgy, just like I think I think India-Pakistan matches in Sharjah were classics in their own rights. Um, you know, I think ranging all the way from the Akib, you know, from the Akib Javed hat trick match to, of course, the famous 
uh, 125-87 match when India batted first, made 125, and then Pakistan were bowled out for 87. Um, the atmosphere was electric. I think the I think the I think the role that the games themselves played for the diaspora fans in Sharjah was fascinating. And I think once I was in the states and I was conscious of that. I think the Sharjah games took on a different sort of meaning as well because I was aware of the fact that there was this kind of uh, very intense diaspora rivalry between cricket fans that was finding expression in these in these settings, um, which is why, by the way, I happen to think that uh, India and Pakistan should play Test cricket in England if they ever get a chance. Uh, but yes, I think uh, some of the legend of Tendulkar has to do with his uh, with many of the innings he played at Sharjah against Pakistan and against other countries. And, uh, you know, by the time India stopped playing cricket in Sharjah against Pakistan for, you know, the reasons that the Board of Cricket Control in India gave uh, the association with match fixing, I think that swing away from Pakistani dominance in one-day international cricket had started, which I think, you know, you started to see by the end of, by the end of the millennium. Yeah, I mean, uh, definitely. Mm-hmm. Success or maybe turning, uh, gaining success against an opponent that's owned you doesn't yeah. come overnight. But I think Tendulkar provided the blueprint and it was just a fresh approach. Of course, he needed help later yeah, on yeah. with the likes of, you know, Ganguly and uh, Dravid and then even later Sehwag and uh, Yuvraj. That became a very talented Indian team. But I think when he was a lone battler, and I don't want to shortchange yeah. Azhar because I think Azhar, of course, for well-known reasons of match-fixing, a lot of yeah. young fans don't know what Azhar's contributions are. Yeah, he scored three centuries, but he was also a player who was a little ahead of his time. I think his running between the wickets was pretty exceptional. And uh, yeah. besides the two ducks in Sharjah against Pakistan in the 91 Akib Javed, you know, hat-trick series, I think he yeah. showed up for some of those big games. So what is your recollection of Azhar, the player, and Azhar, the captain, in some of those matches against Pakistan? Well, uh, you know... Uh, I'll just say something about Azhar as a batsman and as a player in general, which is that when Azhar came on the scene, and you know he was an absolute sensation, and I think it's really important to sort of, I think, try to kind of convey some of the sense of excitement that was about his presence in the Indian team, because I was at Delhi University at the time, and there was a Hirani Trophy game between the Ranji champions and uh, the rest of India uh, that was being played at the Ferocia Kotla. And Azhar made 151 in that game. And there were many of us who went down from, um, from the main campus. We, you know, we jumped in some of the DTC buses and we rode it down to the Ferocia Kotla. And many went and saw the game. Some came back. And I remember there was a friend of mine. He was a, he was a hostler from Bihar. And he was just holding court in the cafeteria the next day. He was smoking a cigarette, drinking a cup of tea. And he said, man, this guy, there is just no one like him. And, you know, we saw, you know, we saw on television. And, you know, Azhar was just unbelievable. The young Azhar who was about, I think, 25, 30 pounds lighter than the Azhar that you see now. He was whippet-thin. He was lean and wiry. And he used to hold the bat with this kind of high grip. And when he used to whip the ball off his off his body, I mean he used to play these leg dances and cuts. I mean you literally felt that if he you know that if he had like a rolled up umbrella or a you know or like a sword in his hand, he could like flick the cricket ball with that. I mean he had such a fine kind of touch. And so he used to play the most incredible shots. There are some, you know, if you go through YouTube, 
and you find, for example, his 93 against Australia, I think, in the 85 World You know, uh, I was going to bring that up. I wanted your opinion, so package uh, that. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah. And against Pakistan, you know, for instance, uh, three, you know, Pakistan made a low score, but then Imran came out and took the first three Indian wickets to fall very quickly. And I remember coming back home, I think from the, I think from campus, and I ran home and I was, you know, looking for commentary on Radio Australia and All India Radio suddenly said that they were relaying Radio Pakistan's commentary. So I tuned in and, you know, um, I started hearing this very, you know, chaste Urdu commentary that was coming in, in uh, from Radio Pakistan. And in fact, I even blogged about that experience, about how interesting that felt. And Gavaskar and Azhar just had this incredible uh, partnership that just took India through to the end. And at that time, I remember just feeling. And I think that's, I think that is, you know, that's an example of a period when I felt that India had turned the corner against Pakistan. And for a couple of years, you know, this is, you know, this is a very interesting fact that India, in just that one period, about 1985-86, they did really well against Pakistan in one-day games. And then, of course, you know, they, they lost that edge again. But I remember um, that Azhar was a very important part of that. And, and I think that, that, that innings is a classic instance where he came on, he took the Pakistani bowlers on. Uh, and it's fair to say, Samir, right, in that match, actually from 85 to 87, that's a very small period where Imran's, you know, remaining peak coincided coincide with Akram's beginning of his peak. So they were pretty yeah. fearsome together. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I mean, you know, when Akram came to India in 87, you know, he was the young tearaway fast bowler. And uh, and Imran was, you know, on, you know, I think what we could one quite fairly call his decline. He was bowling off a reduced run-up. He had reduced pace. Um and, you know, you could see that this is the young fast bowler that Imran was grooming and, you know, Pakistan was transitioning to a new attack at that time. All right, so let's do a quick segue to Wasim Akram. Again, what he just said made me think of this question. In 86, 87, mm-hmm. he comes to India as a young tier away and we were all, you know, in awe of his talent and how quick he's bowling. New ball, old ball, the peculiar left arm action, small run Sakib, can I just say one thing real quick? Sure. Um, uh, I, I just want to interrupt you because uh, I wanted to say something about Azhar before I move on to Akram. Absolutely, go ahead. Which is the Azhar as fielder aspect, you know, which I think is sometimes underappreciated by people today or by today, you know, maybe the younger cricket fans who haven't seen as many replays of his most dramatic, uh, of his most dramatic performances. He was a brilliant catcher, a brilliant fielder. Um, and his body language was quite amazing for that of catcher because he could be quite nonchalant when he would take a catch. And so he had this very smooth sort of lithe body that would just position itself perfectly. So he looked to be taking catches effortlessly. And I saw him do something in a test match once, which I think modern Indian cricket fans have only seen Virat Kohli do, which is that Azur was fielding at slip and the batsman played a shot down the third man. They took off for a single and we're coming back for the second and Azar saw that the fielder was throwing to the wicket keeper but the batsman who was throwing to the keeper's end was going to make his run so Azar intercepted the throw from the fielder in the slips and threw to the bowler's end and that kind of cut off interception and throw you know this kind of almost like this baseball style technique which I think you know People were going gaga over when Virat Kohli did it recently in a test match or a one-day. 
I just wanted to make note of that, that Azhar was doing that in a test match back in 1997. That's how brilliant a fielder he was. No, and I will also add an anecdote of my own, which I think we touched upon briefly in the first episode with you, Samir. The 5-1, yeah. you know, uh, beating that Imran and team gave us at home. Uh-huh. Azhar was the reason we won that match because score was tied and he ran Kadir out of the last ball. And, yes. and, and that's clutch. I mean, that Indian team was not known to do these kind of things. Of course, the 85 team was very solid. But my memory in that 1986-87 home beating against Pakistan, it was so bad because not only, <clears throat> excuse me, they were winning matches like at Indoor with Kadir, then Salim Malik at Calcutta. It was just like hopeless situation. And then this happens. And at yeah. the time, as fans watching on TV, we didn't even know who had won. And then yeah. they yeah. announced, okay, the scores are tied. Pakistan lost one more wicket and India mm-hmm. wins the match. So for me yeah. and my friends, I mean, Azir running Kadir out, that was just like stuff of yeah. legend that doesn't get you know talked about in this modern day and age because, you know, of course, you know, there's no footage, I think, of that run out, even if you do on YouTube. Uh, no, not now. I mean, I actually saw it on television and I remember that, uh, you know, quite distinctly because the next day on college, you know, we were all cracking jokes at Kadir's expense because, you know, I mean, obviously, if they hadn't taken that last single, they could have tied the game, right? Uh, but obviously, they wanted to try and win and that's why they got run out. But anyway, there's a whole bunch of jokes being made at Kadir's expense. So I actually remember that quite clearly. So, so yeah, I mean, let's uh, pose the Rasim Akram question once again. I think we both covered... Uh, I think uh, quite few memories of Mohammad Azruddin as a fielder and as a batsman. So, Vaseem yeah. Akram, you just said in your response that made me wonder the longevity of this man. In '87, mm-hmm. he comes again as a tear away. Then in '99, again, he is in the same attack as Shoaib Akhtar, but he's still yeah. as good. So, yeah. talk about his genius. And then, part B of the question is Akram versus Tendulkar. Is it the biggest matchup in cricket that really didn't get its fair share compared to, say, Gavaskar Imran and Imran bowling to Richards or Kapil bowling to Miyadad? Because of whatever reasons, they didn't play yeah. each other many times in test matches. Yeah. Well, I think let's just, uh, real quick, the latter part, I think, is quite easy to answer that, yes, uh, we were robbed, I think, of some classic test matches and some classic test match encounters between Sachin and uh, Wasim Akram. And I would say between other Indian batsmen and uh, Wasim Akram, Bakar Yunus, and other uh, Pakistani fast bowlers. So I think that's definitely a loss. And I wish that, you know, uh, but, you know, there is also something to be said that I think India-Pakistan cricket never really got properly scheduled. We were either having too much cricket or too little cricket. We just never got the right balance of India-Pakistan cricket and not know how to market it or, you know, stage it. Um now, the more interesting, I think, aspect of the, the, the cricketing question that you asked about, you know, Wasim's longevity is that, you know, he, I think, like other great fast bowlers, uh, evolved over his career. He was a little bit quicker when he started. And uh, he was also, uh, he was also way, uh, way leaner. Uh, you know, there was, there was a kind of a, there was a whippet-like quality to him in the young Wasim Akram. Uh, which is actually quite amazing to watch. If you go back and see some early YouTube videos, uh, he became uh, considerably more, you know, uh, I would say, um, uh, muscular as or you know, heavier, if you want to call it that, as he went on. But he had a quick, efficient, bustling run-up. He had a very, uh, uh, and a, and a very uh, efficient uh, action, 
that you know his his left arm never went particularly high um and he would you know i mean there was there was a way in which when you watched him run he was very busy you know he would grab the ball he would run he would briskly walk back to the end of his run up there wasn't any posturing at the top of his run up he would he would walk to the end of his run up turn around and come back in very quickly um and you know he maintained and i think like courtney wall she might have found that the secret to longevity was to men- was to actually bowl a great deal because you know akram had a busy county cricket career as well he bowled many many overs in county cricket he played for pakistan in test matches one day internationals but i think he you know uh, you know he's he's been someone who's clearly taken care of him of himself because you know he's a he's a diabetic and has challenges with diet and exercise that others probably don't uh, but i think some of his efficiency um, physically off his run up and his action has something to do with his physical longevity longevity as a fast bowler and i think in cricketing terms it's because he's learned a great deal and because he knows what to do in conditions that are not necessarily um, helpful for him he knows what to do on flat tracks he knows what to do when the when the atmosphere uh, provides conditions helpful for swing bowling um you know he's i think uh, you know very few modern cricket fans who've seen him bowl would hesitate to put him in their list of you know the greatest fast bowlers of of you know the modern times and i think we've all been lucky to watch him in action no absolutely i think uh, you in your response you mentioned how economic his run up was and i think if you compare him to his other new ball partners Vakar Yunus and then Shoaib Akhtar later on and even someone like West Indies Patrick Patterson he didn't have that yeah. kind of a built up you know the tear away run up where you could see yeah. the the bowlers probably were feeling uh, their body was taking a beating because the kind of you know work they were putting in he was to me again a different comparison i all as a young boy i used to say two things you can't mimic on a cricket pitch or a tennis court was Ivanisevic serve motion and Akram's bowling action to me they both yeah. were wizards you didn't know what they were going to do of course i mean they're like the greatest goran is the greatest i think server a lefty server and wasim akram is arguably the greatest left arm quick bowler so right. so let's bring his partner in crime fakar yunus and fortunately for others and unfortunately for them this tandem didn't really have a full partnership because fakar's career was injury plagued and then of course there were like some you know political moves in pakistan cricket we won't get into that but right. purely on terms of bowling which one did you see as a tougher matchup for the indian bowlers and uh, do you have a preference between the two if you were to take uh, one ha huh. you know i would say that uh, i'm not sure that any indian batsman would be able to give you a, a completely forthright or honest answer about who they preferred facing i don't know i i just think uh, right-handed batsmen tend to find left arm bowlers more difficult to face and that's a completely superficial and sort of generic um you know response in this case but but i think maybe i think akram's record against india was slightly better than yunus's in one day internationals and i think indian batsmen might have also found him more difficult to face because one thing with yunus that i think sometimes you could count upon was that you know you might occasionally get the one going down leg side that you could you know flick away for four um i think when it came to watching them in action i found uh, i found yunus to be absolutely fascinating to watch because you know he his run up was very much uh, sharply contrasted with that of akram's he had a long run up 
he, he took his time running, well, he didn't take his time running, and he actually ran in at full tilt, and he would wind himself up and uh, launch himself into that slingshot action of his, uh, you know, obviously not as pronounced as Malinga's, but there was something slightly round down in, in his action as well. Um, so I think visually, I used to just slightly prefer watching Yunus bowl. Um, but I think when it just came to thinking about what they were bowling and how they were bowling, I think I was fascinated by them equally. They did, they did different things with the, with the ball in their own unique ways. So was this like a deadlier duo, say, compared to an Imran and Sarfraz that we talked about last episode, the 82 uh, tandem? I know it's, uh, they were not bowling to the same batsman. So that always is, uh, I think, the discussion in cricket, who did you score against, who was the bowler, and what was the situation. But an overall comparison uh, oh, between yes, this I, tandem I would, with Imran and Sarfraz. Yeah, I would rank uh, Akram and Sarfraz as a, uh, Akram and Yunus as a pair, as a tandem, as a combo, uh, you know, above that of Imran and Sarfraz. Because I think in that case, Imran, uh, Sarfraz was, uh, you know, was, I would say, a bowler who, in terms of his range, repertoire, pace, um, you know, didn't really, doesn't really, um, you know, is not really comparable to either Wasim Akram or Wakar Yunus. Um, you know, Safras swung the ball. He was a seam bowler, and you know he's responsible for one of the most, you know, um, astonishing collapses in Test cricket history when he took seven wickets for one run against Australia in a Test match. But I don't think as a bowler he's of the same caliber as uh, either Wasim Akram or Walker Yunus. Okay, fair enough. I mean, I think most uh, people would agree to this. Uh, this was a definitely a very deadly tandem. Yeah. So let's take a big shift from the conversation. I know we've talked a lot of test matches and some one days. But let's talk about India's World Cup uh, domination, which started in a very, you know, unfamiliar way. If anybody had told us in 92, after India had lost to Australia 4-0 in the test series, when Azhar was the captain, and in mm-hmm. World Series, uh, the Triangle Series, we were, you know, soundly beaten by Australia. Yeah. And then... Of course, Pakistan wins the World Cup, India beats them. So that Sydney match, I mean, uh, again, that go- goes back to my earlier point in the conversation. Was it the beginning of the freshness that some of those Indian players had? Uh, because they, ha- they were not part of that, you know, that Pakistan domination. And this was, again, Imran on his, you know, last run. And Vakar Yunus is not in the World Cup. So w- what was, uh, I mean, what was changing in that, and of course, you know, World Cups are not like they're like outliers. Next time, the World Cup is '96, and right. it's a different group of players. So yeah, so to yeah, so- I'm actually hesitant to read too much significance into that one particular game as being the marker of anything in particular. I think that I think that that team that India had in that game, you know, for example, Kapil Dev was playing in that team, uh, Prabhaka was playing, More was playing. Uh, Tendulkar was playing, Azhar was playing. It was a, you know, it was a blend of the older team and the newer team, and it was sort of starting to transition to the later incarnations that we saw in, in the mid-90s. I think India got it together in that game. Pakistan was still struggling to get it together. I think I think Tendulkar scored 57 or something like that. Um, it was a relatively low-scoring game. I do remember Prabhakar dismissing, I think, Salim Malik and, um, you know, running at Mori and, you know, uh, and, you know, giving uh, Malik a few pieces as he went by. And uh, I remember thinking that 
you know, well, at least someone like Prabhakar, you know, he has this kind of aggro that you need in order to mix it up with Pakistan on the cricket field. And I think that's one, I think, I think if you were to ask me, and you know, this might sound funny coming to you as a fellow Delhi um, alumnus, that I used to always think that the people who do well against Pakistan in these games, you know, will be the players from Delhi. Uh, they'll know how to mix it up with these guys. Uh, you know, they'll know how to create BCs and MCs with the Pakistani players. And in fact, you know, when Jadeja went after Yunus in the 1996 Bangalore World Cup game, I was I was watching the game with a couple of my couple of my friends, and I turned around to them and said, "See, I told you so. You know, I knew it was going to be a Delhi boy that was going to, you know, win this game for us." Um, but but you know, just to get back to your original question, I would think these World Cup games they signal something that's happening outside in the Indian team in general. Um, I think with Pakistan, what's always happened is in, in the World Cup is in these games. Uh, you know, obviously certain factors have clicked for India. Uh, and I think many Indian players have, you know, played out of their skins in, in these games. And actually, um, you know, in each game, we've had very, very memorable performances by Indian uh, players that have actually, you know, helped India come through. Uh, maybe not so much in the last couple of World Cups, but, you know, that's certainly the case in the, you know, in the 2003 World Cup, uh, for instance, uh, or in the 96 World Cup. Yeah, it's definitely not just a cricket match when India plays Pakistan. So all the four World Cups we just mentioned, 92, 96, 2003. Actually, we didn't mention 99. That was a very talented Pakistan team. And then India yes. got the better of them in Manchester. Azhar scored a 50 there. And, yeah, uh, it wasn't a pretty 50. It was a pretty fighting 50 because he was out of form. So yes. out of those four matches, uh, I think it's fair to say India was an underdog, at least in two of them, in 92 and 96. Oh, sorry, 99. So... Yeah. How do you break yes, up I, the four matches? India came victorious in all four. Which was the biggest surprise out of the four? You know, I would say that you're right, actually. In 99, I would say I felt the most apprehensive about India's chances. And, you know, that match, I think from a personal perspective, was played in very dramatic circumstances for me. I was, I was visiting India at that time. Um, and, you know... My brother was at that time a pilot with the Indian Air Force, and he had been sent off to a base in the, you know, in the forward sectors. And I had no idea what, you know, what operations he was getting up to. And I was going instead to meet my sister-in-law at his Air Force base in Ambala. And so I took a train from Delhi to Ambala, and I was still jet-lagged from my flight. And... I got to the Air Force station and I knew that the, you know, the telecast was in the afternoon. And it was funny, you know, I was, my head was kind of a swirl. I was interested in getting updates on my brother, but I also wanted to watch the game. And I was taking a rickshaw to my brother's house and, you know, these, these jets were flying overhead at the base. And, you know, it just all felt completely surreal and bizarre to think that this war was happening up in Kargil away on the border and this game was taking place in the World Cup that afternoon. And then, you know, uh, telecasts from England used to start at 2 o'clock, 3 o'clock in India. So I went to my brother's house and, you know, my, and, you know, my, my Bobby's making me cups of tea and I'm having snacks and I'm trying to stay awake while I'm jet lagged. 
And then I, I, I sort of watched that game fading in and out. And I remembered the atmosphere was absolutely electric. It was being played at Old Trafford. And the Pakistani fans that day were super aggressive. They were very, very aggressive that day. Uh, the Indian fans are loud, but, you know, Old Trafford is a kind of a Pakistani stronghold. Um, and they were out in numbers. The Indian fans were out in numbers. The, I mean, if you if you watch that match, I mean, I would love to watch high-quality, high-definition video of that match just to, like, listen to the sounds. Um, and, like, you know, Pakistan had a strong team that year. That's, you know, that's the year they went on to the final. And they had Shoy Bakhtar going full tilt. They had... Uh, they had Wasim Akram. Um, they had, and both these bowlers were bowling well. Moin Khan was this late order specialist. And I just kind of had this nightmare that Moin Khan was going to come late down the order and we would have Pakistan in trouble and he would just smash 40 or 15 deliveries or something. And, you know, we would just lose the game at that point. And that's what I thought was going to happen. In fact, that's what I thought was going to happen in that game. But, you know, India just kept on taking wickets. They just kept on taking wickets. And it was just an electrifying finish. And then I remember the game ended and the crowd swarmed across the ground. And there were all these like, you know, encounters in the crowd and then these scuffles and punchings and kickings. And then I think like, I think, um, you know, some magazine published a photograph showing, you know, Pakistani fans burning an Indian flag and stomping it. And, you know, the, the police were getting into the middle of it. It was just a very, very, I think the most, I think in terms of atmosphere, I would say, that match and the 96 match in Bangalore were like easily the most atmospheric of the India-Pakistan World Cup games that I've seen. I think there's, I mean, I don't think I've ever seen sporting events that are that, that intense as those games were. No, again, uh, you know, I, I wish, you know, what you said, uh, because 20 years later, the match that happened last year under Virat Kohli's uh, team that India won convincingly, it's not the same rivalry. So, yeah. So what was changing? Was it, you know, Pakistan had lost its like, I'm sure rebuilding happens in each sport. India was getting more professional and, you know, there was money coming through Indian cricket. The Tendulkar effect is huge, you know, the generation that followed him. But what was happening in Pakistan? They still had some really good players like Inzamam uh, coming through the ranks after, you know, who was pretty much a contempor- contemporary for Sachin and Dravid. So what was happening in the Pakistan camp? Where was this rivalry becoming, you know, if it's fair to say, a little one-sided. Of course, you know, they had, like, great players come through the ranks. But overall, where did you first feel, okay, now India is starting to have an edge even outside of World Cups? You know, the one uh, consistent feature of Pakistani cricket is that they have always had very talented cricketers come through the pipeline and they have encountered a poorly organized domestic cricket structure uh, corrupt administration and uh, and a kind of you know inconsistent and whimsical selection policy, right? And I think this has always been, and I think you know you can get an expert in Pakistani cricket like Osman Samuddin to talk about more of this. But this is you know in bare bones is Pakistan cricket's perennial problem. And I think in the last 20, 25 years, what you've seen is that Pakistan has continued to produce talented cricketers. They've produced lots of fast bowlers, lots of spinners. Um, I think in batting, their problems in the last 20, 25 years have become worse. They don't seem to produce, you know, for example, Babar Azam is a a very talented uh, batsman in both test cricket and one-day cricket. 
but frankly speaking, they they haven't produced batsmen in this new generation, this new millennium that come anywhere near close to the batsmen that they had in the 90s. When you think that in the 1990s, they had people like Saeed Anwar and Zamal Mulhaq. I mean, there is, you know, they don't produce batsmen like that. Muhammad Yusuf. Yeah, my God. I mean, those are, I mean, that's a, that's a heavy hitting trio right there, right? So, but, but, but there's no one of compare. I mean, you know, Pavarazam aside, there are very few people who have batted well for Pakistan. And I think their absence from English county cricket, their absence from consistent test cricket has hurt them. They keep producing great fast bowlers. They keep producing great, uh, you know, spin bowlers. But I think it's their, and they have, they have struggled, I think, in some ways to master a certain kind of dysfunction that is always present in their cricket. And, you know, they have tried to impose order on it with coaches and more consistent selection policy. But I think, um, I don't think they've been able to solve their batting problem. And I think, and I think India's arc has been correspondingly different. We've never stopped producing great batsmen, but we've had inconsistent batting performances overseas. And we've never stopped producing great spinners, but we've struggled to produce fast bowlers, especially those who would win matches for us overseas. Now India has still has great batsmen, and now it has great fast bowlers as well because it is now producing fast bowlers, and it still has quality spin bowlers. So India now wins at home like it always does, but now it wins overseas as well because it has batsmen whose runs are now backed up by a fast bowling attack. And Pakistan is lacking components of this. Pakistan is lacking the batting lineup. And I think to a certain extent, they're also lacking the fielding component of this because their catching has not always been of the quality that their, that their bowling attack would have required. Okay, so let's take this conversation, you know, to the 2004 friendship tour. Rasim Akram had retired after the 2003 World Cup. India goes to Pakistan. Tendulkar and Sehwag, it's a powerful team led yeah. by Saurav Ganguly. Craig Chappell is the coach. Rahul Dravid is arguably the best test batsman in the world uh, because his average at that point was ridiculous. I think there was a time he was averaging 65 abroad, yeah. if my memory serves me correct. And Pakistan still, you know, have their own star. Shoaib Akhtar is there. Yeah, Akram is gone, but they don't have that sting in the bowling, but they're playing in Pakistan. And Akhtar is right. at, at the peak of his powers. Right. So did that series magnify uh, the missing link where India could never win in Pakistan. That was just beyond imagination. And now they go there, not only they start scoring runs, of course they have dust balls, like you know these these dead tracks, but they were similar to what Imran and Sarfraz was getting the better of our guys. And now Dravid, Sehwag, Tendulkar, everybody's just scoring runs. It yeah, was a run face, and then so. they, every match gets decided, and India wins 2-1. So yeah. in the grand scheme of things, in the ghost of the past, where does that rank in the cricket annals? Not only in this rivalry, but India's cricketing fortunes? I think that's a hugely significant test series. Hugely significant. And it's not just significant because India won both the test matches and the one-day internationals and they won them in some dramatic games in the one-day series and in the test matches they won them in, you know, in classic test match fashion. And I will say something about what I mean by that. Um, I think they're very significant. I think India... I think had all the advantages you mentioned. It was just a question of people performing to their potential. And, you know, let's not forget, India lost the second test match at Lahore because Umar Gul destroyed the Indian batting lineup on the first day. But it says something about the quality of the Indian team at that point that when India lost that second test match, my first reaction was not, you know, the old, oh man, that's it, we're screwed. Now we're going to lose the third test match as well. My reaction was, 
oh, that was okay. That was a one-shot thing. I think these guys are going to come back big in the third test match and win. And that's exactly what happened. So I think the very fact that I perceive their chances in Pakistan differently, I think says a great deal about how the team's performances, their demeanor, the way in which they had won the first test match, just made people feel that, you know, they were going to win the third test match too. And that's exactly what happened. You know, in the first test match, India just batted and batted and made huge innings and they just crushed Pakistan by an innings. And in the third test match, you know, Pakistan batted first, India sent them in, you know, and that, and that for me was a revelation that we felt confident enough to send them in. And, you know, it was a decision that for a second looked like it might have backfired. But then India bowled them out on the first day. And then, you know, Sevak went first ball to, you know, to Shoaib Bakhtar. But then, you know, Robert, who at this time was, I think, quite honestly, you know, the greatest batsman that India has produced in the modern era, you know, in those two years, Dravid was just incredible form, you know, because he had pulled off that miracle against um, against Australia in 2001. He had won India that test match at Adelaide in 2003. And now he, here he was scoring 270 against Pakistan in Pakistan. And, you know, he was just making these runs. And I was thinking, you know, he's going to score so many runs that India is going to win this test match. And that's exactly what he did. It was a classic example. It was a classic test match double hundred where you just backed the other team out of the out of the game. And in fact, you put so many runs on the board that there's only one outcome that's possible, which is that the other team is going to crumble in the face of this pressure. And that's exactly what happened to Pakistan. And it was just the way that you, you know, for me, it was, for me personally, watching that test match, it was like in 21 years, the, pen, the pendulum had swung all the way back. In 1983, I'd watched Zaheer and Miandad and Mudassar score double hundreds and centuries, and Pakistan had destroyed India by an innings at uh, at Hyderabad, beaten India by huge margins at Karachi and Lahore. And now this time, India went there, and 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 Dravid did exactly the same. It was kind of amazing. Okay, so let's say on Dravid again, another name that really doesn't need, you know. In any introduction or any anecdotes or any factual, because everything's played out to perfection. But let's talk. I want to get your view on the declaration, the infamous declaration with Tendulkar in 194. I'm sure you've read about it. I'm sure you might have even written about it because a lot has been spoken. And even the post retirement, this declaration keeps coming back for both Sachin and Dravid. So if memory serves you right, how do you view that? And a lot of people even said, oh, an English declaration, I think, was Mike Atherton when he declared Graham Hick 98 not out because he wanted yeah. to get two overs before T. That was the That's... most commonly cited example. But yeah. some of the Indian fans haven't forgiven him, and some of the Indian fans think that was the right thing to do. So what does Samir Chopra uh, think of that uh, declaration with Tendulkar at 194? Well, I think that uh, David was right to declare when he did in terms of his cricketing compulsions of getting in a certain number of overs or wanting to get a crack at the Pakistani uh, batting. I do think that this was a case in which um, a simple communique between captain and batsman could have uh, saved everybody a whole lot of grief, which is that I think Dravid could have communicated to Tindalpur quite clearly at tea time that, um, you know, we are clearly on route for a massive total. 
And you know, if you are 500 something plus at P time or 600 something plus at P time, whatever the score was, and this is the second day, you are basically heading for one straightforward decision, which is when are you going to declare in the post T session and how many overs do you want at the opposing side? Do you want enough overs to have a few a few overs by your spinners? Or, are, or do you only want to let your fast bowlers go flat out for 10 overs or something like that? Given that, I would have thought that the Indian team would have had some kind of discussion that we're going to bat for 25 overs or 30 overs and you know, or you know, 10, 20 overs. So I'm so I'm surprised to be honest. To me, this seems like what one might call an operational screw up, where due to a lack of communication between the people involved in this situation, the captain just you know was like, hey, I don't have time to send a messenger out or whatever it is, or I thought this guy knew that I was going to declare at this time. Or Tindilko thought that the captain was going to allow him two more overs so he could calmly and coolly get to his double hundred. I think I think that communication broke down. I think Dravid went ahead and declared. And I think you know he obviously had to declare when he had to. He clearly felt the time was right, and I would and I would support his judgment in that regard. Where I think matters went wrong, and I think it shows in the fact that we are talking about this this so-called controversy 16 years later. Is that I think it's a simple case of you know to to paraphrase an old famous uh, Hollywood line, um, what we have here is a failure to communicate. I think that's quite well said. So yeah, we're running short on time. I know we want to end this pretty soon, maybe another twenty twenty five minutes because uh, you have to uh, you have to uh, an appointment to keep. So let's talk about certain players again. We can't cover them all. So what Pakistan was doing to India in the late eighties with the likes of Mansoor Ilahi and Salim Malik. And, you know, of course, the bowling was always world-class. Uh, Ramiz Raja, everybody was, you know, they had this kind of edge when they were playing India, Mudassar Nazar. Then we started seeing a slight change. In that Pakistan tour, uh, we also won the one-day series, which was, I think, one of the best one-day series, where Tendulkar got that catch of Inzimam at the boundary. But there were yeah. cameos, like Mahendra Singh Dhoni was making his move, where Indra Sehwag was an established guy. Uh, yeah. Yuvraj Singh, Suresh Raina. So what was changing in the Indian ranks? I mean, do you still attribute this to a Tendulkar uh, impact? You know, like over the years, now the talent is coming through the ranks or India has become such a financial hub, the cricket centers and the MRF Academy. Overall, the package was just world-class and uh, you could see uh, the old notions were thrown out of the window that Indians won't perform in big matches. And this goes all the way to the 2007 World Cup T20 win where Yusuf Patan hits... First ball for a six. I mean, when were these things happening in India? I mean, I don't recall those. So it's a big ground I covered there, but you can uh, respond to it which way you feel is correct. I think you've touched on some of the components of that the so-called rise that you describe. I think one is, you know, uh, the the presence of uh, a certain kind of talent coming through from India's domestic cricket, you know, and. It's worth pointing out that India's age group cricket tournaments are a wonderful nursery of cricket. You know, the under-15, under-17, and under-19 tournaments in India are actually a very rich uh, nursery of cricketing talent. And the real problem in Indian cricket has always been how to channel that talent. And I think some of that channeling improved. I think there were more venues for international expression. Um, I think, you know, there were many, you know, there are, I think, still many problems with the with the organization of domestic cricket, but I think there were, you know, lots of youngsters who were, you know, whose imagination, I think, had been fired up by the ready-made 
availability of high quality uh, visual representations of cricket. You know, satellite television had blown up in India in the 1990s. The game was packaged differently. Indian coaching changed. We started to get coaches in the you know in this new millennium. Um, uh, I'm not I'm not such a great uh, you know I'm not necessarily convinced about all the virtues of coaching, but you know Indian fielding improved, Indian catching improved, Indian physical fitness improved. Uh, so I think these are all like multiple components, which I think many as many observers of Indian cricket have commented on, even as some aspects of Indian cricket have remained, you know, um, you know, frustratingly resistant to change. But I think those in the most in the most visible cricketing terms was that India's, you know, always productive production line of batting talent started to make contact finally with a very good out cricket side as well you know um, good bowlers good fielders uh, fit bowlers fit fielders uh, you know one capable of maintaining cricketing pressure over session after session in test cricket or of being able to um, you know do all the right things for the limited amount of time that you're supposed to in one day cricket or t20 cricket um, you know, certain kinds of skills that people had felt were short supply in Indian cricket started to come to the fore. Uh, you know, the ability to pull off uh, brilliant runouts, take dramatic catches, uh, you know, produce, uh, you know, fast bowlers who could hold their pace through their careers or, or, you know, through a game. So I think there are many components to this. And, you know, I think you're sort of seeing many aspects of that captured in this present team on the Virat Kohli, where you have this captain, quite frankly, who is literally someone who has grown up in this period that we are talking about, right? I mean, he has literally been born and he has grown up learning, watching his cricket in this period. I'm not sure how old Holy is. I think he's probably in his late 20s, or early 30s. Um, so he's, you know, someone who was born maybe right around the time that Tendulkar made his debut. And he's, um, so he's He's the product of the new cricketing of the new cricketing India. Uh, he's someone who is aware of India's cricket history, who's aware of his, you know, who has channeled his passion. I mean, uh, who has understood in a very, I think, smart and astute way that he has a chance if he really gives it his all to to sort of ensure for himself a certain kind of immortality or you know a certain kind of fame or power and uh, and he's and he's prepared to work hard for it and you know he has he has learned from cricketing history he has he's he's very aware of what he's doing you know um, so I think in, in, in Kohli you kind of see this these different strains of the development and growth of Indian cricket being captured in this one figure I think he captures it's um, many of its Many of its most prominent and I think promising aspects. Sure. In this, in no, we, we, we'll get to Kohli in the last question of this uh, chat, but uh, I want to just put again uh, a more of an opinion based question, which I'm sure you've heard and you can probably uh, talk about it at length, I have a feeling. Uh, yeah. Interesting, Dhoni, especially the way he led India into one day cricket and the way he batted, the way he read the game. I used to tell some of my friends, uh, I would, he was a modern day Javed Miyadad. Of course, the game has changed. Uh, these sure. days, teams were changing, chasing 360 plus. Javed Miyadad was a great exponent of the one-day game and teams were battling against the West Indies basement for a 220, which is a good score. 
So did you yep. ever see this comparison? And if you did, do you want to elaborate for the listeners here? I think, uh, you know, when we think of someone like Dhoni and compare him with Miyandad, I think that comparison is quite spot on for some of those reasons that you mentioned. And I also think just because, you know, the two of them were, uh, I think, you know, for lack of a better word, they weren't the greatest stylists in their batting, but they were very effective. And I think they knew how to manufacture certain kinds of cricketing opportunities for themselves in the most dire of cricketing situations. And I think they were also quite, uh, uh, and I think also they were masterful psychologists in the sense that they sensed their opponents out quite well. They knew how to, as it were, either get the best out of their players. Well, in Mayabad's case, I wouldn't make that claim necessarily. Um, but I think in, in, in Dhani's case, his ability to inspire his partner and to get his partner to come along for the ride, where I think um, some of the reasons why I consider Dhani in many, uh, in some ways, even a greater finisher than, uh, than Mianda. Yeah, definitely. And uh, for any Pakistanis who might be listening to this, this comparison me and Samir made was purely on one days. In Test cricket, it's not a comparison. Javed Miyadad is in a different league. So Yes, yeah. It's more <laughs> than being an international finisher. Exactly. All right, so let me wrap this conversation up. This could be a couple of questions here, but we talked briefly about when we were prepping the notes. Uh, and you are someone who's a senior to me uh, in, you know, in watching these matches and these battles unfold. As a young boy, you know, when I was rooting for India, I was also not too happy with Pakistan's domination over us. But I also felt from their players to the commentary in Sharjah, where it usually was Indian and Pakistanis in the box, I felt they had an edge. Uh, and rightfully so, you know, nothing is given. There are no free lunch in the world. You have to earn your spot on the table. I get it. But there was an edge where you never heard Pakistani players talk good about Indian players, uh, especially in a complimentary way. Uh, and maybe it was part of the banter, you know, be it Javed Miyanath calling Irfan Pathan, jaise log to gali gali mein hote hain, basically, you know, you can get Irfan Pathan likes, you know, everywhere. <laughs> and then uh, you can also, if recall, when Kapil broke Hadley's record, Imran said, Imran was retired then, and the great Imran says, I would ask Sir Richard Hadley to come back and take their record. So to me, that was, wasn't really, I couldn't understand why these things were said. And then we come full circle to 2003 or 2004 when a young Imran Nazir is saying that he has two favorite things in India. There's Ashwari Rai and then, of course, his uh, idol, Sachin Tendulkar. And the second right. was groundbreaking for me. I've never heard, you know, any Pakistani give Indian this kind of an accolade. And of course, Tendulkar deserves every accolade that came his way. But it signified something else. And now we are at a place where India is really uh, the, pretty much, you know, the power player, the biggest player in cricket, and, you know, tides have churned. But address the first transformation, what I mentioned, and did you notice the same thing, and when did this about to begin to change, that beyond field also India started holding their own? Uh, just elaborate on this, because I think to me this is a very fascinating transformation. Yeah, I think there are, I think the phenomena that you notice in terms of, I think, uh, your perception of a sort of greater acceptance of and respect or, you know, call it respect or call it maybe just um, a change in the description and acceptance of Indian cricketers by Pakistani players, commentators. I mean, of course, you know, these sorts of edgy remarks made in media which receive a great deal of publicity, I think these are a, these are a perennial feature of Indian India-Pakistan, um, you know, cricket 
Um, I think sniping in the press, and I think you know you can see this between Gautam Gambhir and you know Shahid Afridi right now. And I think those sorts of things are, I think, are destined to continue. What I think is more interesting is the general perception of Indian cricket and Indian cricketers by Pakistani players and fans. And I think some of that has to do with, I think, it's purely cricketing terms that Pakistan cricket often had the edge over Indian cricket. And so um, Pakistani commentators and fans found it easier to, um, you know, sing praises of Pakistani teams and players as opposed to that of Indian teams and players. Uh, Pardon me, there's a siren outside. But I think the other aspect of that is as that as the visibility of the game has increased, as Pakistani fans, players, and commentators have seen, largely because of the of the presence of satellite television, they've seen the Indian team play more. They play uh, against them, and you know the Indian team in from the mid 90s onwards has been the home of some of the world's most attractive batsmen. And uh, you know some some other very talented cricketers who are responsible for the position that India occupies in world cricket now. So I think the attitude that you might expect Pakistani cricket fans to have towards one of the world's strongest teams, as opposed to a team that was weaker than them, which is when Pakistan was one of the world's strongest teams, I think that's the change that we are most significantly seeing. India just is a more accomplished team. Our players, uh, Indian players, are you know, have have done well in a variety of cricketing venues overseas and at home. Um, they play, uh, you know, their feats are very prominent. They are, you know, you can watch, you can watch the Indian cricket team play all over the world on on many different cable and satellite and uh, and uh, cable network um, television uh, systems. So there, there's a sense in which the I think Pakistani changes in their perception of India have to do with cricketing terms. And I think this the, the, the money aspect of it is that, yes, the Indian team is, is much more visible. The Indian cricket board is able to arrange games and, and telecast its games and sign rights to have its games broadcast to the diaspora all over the world. Um, the Indian team is not yet at that level, but, um, you know, they, they need to be more internationally successful. But, you know, they can very well become one of the sporting teams, um, greatest franchises, so to speak. Right? And, and for the longest time, correct me if I'm wrong, the likes of Ramiz Raja and Vaseem Akram also did a lot of media commitments through either through Indian networks or at least stationed yeah. in India. So That's right. that exposure overlapped, I think, some of that you know, image transformation. That's right. And, and you know, uh, Shoy Bakhtar, uh, you know, these guys have had a regular Indian media presence and they still have it now. And, you know, um, there is, you know, there is there is work to be had and connections to be made. And, uh, you know, and, and, and all of this speaks to the need for different kinds of relationships, you know, far different from the times when, um, you know, when uh, when when I think Indian cricketing relationships with Pakistan were far less, uh, far less involved. Okay, so let's wrap this up. And uh, you mentioned Virat Kohli and uh, while we were prepping for this uh, uh, podcast, Virat Kohli has a huge fan following in Pakistan. And who knows how what the future holds, but it's fair to say when this is done for Virat Kohli, said and done, say another eight, nine years, he could be one of the most prolific uh, run-getters in test cricket. And there's a good chance he may have never played a test against Pakistan. Yeah, that's, is that actually right? He hasn't played a test against Pakistan. Wow. That's, uh, yeah, that's fascinating. Uh, yeah, that would be kind of amazing to think of 
a batsman in the modern era, an Indian batsman in the modern era, who wouldn't have played a test match against Pakistan and who would. And of course, you know, I mean, you know, Kohli's reputation as a great batsman is, I think, already established in some sense. You know, as yeah, this is not to say that I'm taking anything away, but I'm just saying it's going to be the, you know, the irony of the current situation uh, yes, when cricket yes. greatness is measured. Uh, you yes. know, and of course, Amir is retired, so Kohli really doesn't have an Akram or Gavaskar's Imran. You know, even in the yes. ODI arena now. Okay, Amir yeah. will be playing in ODIs, and if India Pakistan do play more uh, ICC tournaments, but yeah, in Test cricket there is nothing in Virat Kohli or Cheteshwar Pujara's resume that will pair yeah. them against their former counterparts like Akram Vakar or Akhtar. <laughs> That's right. And in fact, you know, Kohli has a kind of a, you know, he's got this whole legendary status in India-Pakistan one-day games. And, uh, you know, it's, it's almost like a modern India-Pakistan one-day game without Kohli would be kind of unthinkable. But yes, in Test cricket, there's nothing. And in fact, I, I, I really do think this is a missed opportunity if, I don't know, somebody had come up with some creative scheduling because I do think that the India-Pakistan test match in England would be absolutely fantastic. I think the cricketing conditions would be great. I think the crowds would be amazing. I think we would have full houses for every single day of the test match. Uh, I know many, many cricket fans from you know from the States would go to England just to watch those test matches and one-day games. Um, so, yeah, I think this is another instance of the India-Pakistan cricket rivalry not being, um, shall I say, managed or uh, marketed properly. Um, but I think, you know, to get back to the earlier question about Kohli, I think Kohli is, um, you know, just speaking about the India-Pakistan rivalry, I think he's been, you know, he's been, a, he's a kind of an amazing sort of torch or spark for it, you know, because you can sense that when he goes out to play against Pakistan, you know, he wants to do it against every team, but um, he's definitely switched on for the games against Pakistan. He's played some amazing innings against Pakistan. Um, the Pakistan team wants desperately to get him out and you know you can tell when they get Kohli out that um, that they have uh, I think that's when the Champions Trophy um, Amir's dismissal of uh, Kohli was the you know um, pivotal dismissal of the game um, but I think he's you know he's someone who thrives in India-Pakistan cricket you know when I think of India-Pakistan cricket now I think of Kohli I think of uh, you know I think of his presence in the game I think he I think he loves those games and I think he I think he, in some ways, elevates the India-Pakistan rivalry because he takes it, you know, as seriously as he does all his other cricket. You know, like there, there was a void, uh, not only against Pakistan, but again as India improved uh, as a, you know, cricket team over the years. There was a void, like you know, pressure matches of some of the big chases. You know, we we didn't. It's not we didn't show up, but we didn't deliver. And Virat Kohli yeah. has just like you know more than fulfilled uh, any fan I think who is my age or your generation. You know, we had that void, and I think he's more than delivered on that account. And Mahindra Singh Dhoni too, Yuvraj Singh, it was just a cycle, but it just came to a perfection with Virat yeah. Kohli uh, in the middle in ODIs. So yeah. I think we covered quite a lot, Samir. Uh, uh, thanks for coming to the show, and uh, hopefully we can record sometime again because we still can talk about the, uh, you know, so many other aspects of the game. And when cricket does resume, I think you will be a voice that I would love to have on the podcast to maybe uh, review a current series or preview a big tournament. So thanks for coming and uh, giving one hour, 10 minutes. And this concludes our India-Pakistan uh, episodes. Well, thanks very much for having me on, Sagib. It was a pleasure as always. And I look forward to talking to you again. Cheers. Cheers.